Make sure you check out our online store where we work with our graphic designer to create stunning garment and product designs that feature a wide variety of aircraft types such as British fighters, World War II aircraft, American bombers, Russian fighters and much more. You can pick your favourite designs and personalise any items within our Redbubble store that range from clothing right the way through to stationery. All of our designs feature our logo so you can show your support for the channel while getting a quality product. You can head to our website aircrewinterview.tv and click store or go to redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash AC interview. Thank you and enjoy. So Sumit, when did you first become interested in aviation? Well, uh, Mike, uh, I, you know, my father was in the army and uh, we moved from place to place. And I guess it was 1960 uh, when we moved to one of uh, our bases in Punjab in the north uh, called Ambala. And uh, that had uh, gnats and hunters at that time. Nice. 1960 uh, and uh, uh, we, what what I found was when I when we landed up there I was a kid I was uh, 10 9 years old and we found these jets you know uh, zipping overhead at low level the hunters and making a huge noise and you know at first time it, it frightened me like hell <laughs> but the excitement it generated was probably where it all started I guess then I went into a boarding school uh, a very uh, a British oriented in fact we had more British instructors or teachers than Indians and uh, we were permitted only uh, certain uh, comics you know we were not permitted the, the run of the mill comics so Eagle comics would come from England and uh, then there were these books in the library. So, you know, we were, uh, I was fascinated, I would say, with Biggles and, you know, some of these other uh, Johnny Johnson stories and stuff like that in the Second World War. So I guess that's where the excitement all started. And uh, then, of course, um, I saw the naval uniform somewhere. And uh, uh, that was another excitement. So I said, why not combine the two? And so actually, I was keen on becoming a fleet air arm pilot. Wow. A Navy pilot. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So I was just uh, the next question is like, yeah, why did you join the the Air Force rather than the, the fleet air arm? Like, what, what was that? Uh, what decision pushed you to the Air Force side? Oh, uh, strange. But, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was listening to some of your other podcasts and I heard my uh, one of my officers in the Indian Air Force. Uh, I went through a sort of a similar uh, sort of an experience. I I went for my um, uh, my uh, examination or whatever it is uh, for the or interview for uh, the Navy. And uh, after the interview f finished, uh, they had a medical, and I failed my medical. Ah. For they failed me for eyesight for night vision. Mm. So I went back home and I said, "That's it. I mean, I can't join." And uh, and I get a call to say that uh, report to another base, uh, the place called Dehradun, uh, where they have the Air Force uh, set up, and they have a thing called a PABT, which is the pilot 
aptitude and battery tests. It's specific to the guys who are joining the Air Force. Mm. And uh, I had given first choice uh, as the uh, Navy, second choice as the Air Force, and third choice as the Army mm-hmm. uh, for joining the Academy, actually. And uh, we have this joint Academy. I think uh, Anil Golani has spoken to you on that mm-hmm. uh, prior to joining that. And uh, so I went for the PABT, and that had some fascinating uh, tests to be done. Of course, I'm talking about 1966, so we had some very rudimentary stuff, but they were pilot aptitude, you know, there was a little cockpit and you know, the little TV screen, and it was like the video games kids play yes. today, uh, uh, but more rudimentary than that. But they were fascinating. I did fairly well. Now, the motor control or the coordination was good, I guess. So they sent me to a medical in uh, Delhi. And the doctor, uh, you know, he sees my papers and he says, I say you failed your medical for eyesight. Mm. You're from the Navy. I said, yes. Then he said, you can't join the Air Force because the Air Force is a little more rigid on eyesight. So I said, well, guess that's it. So he said, uh, okay, let's just test you out. They tested me for my eyes and they said it's absolutely perfect. There was something wrong on the other side. They gave me a piece of uh, a form to fill up to appeal to the Navy to, you know, to take mm-hmm. me back. And I was going home in a, in a bus. I was pretty, you know, sort of, uh, I, I didn't know really what to do. And I said, the Navy, had, you know, didn't treat me well. So I crumpled up that piece of paper and threw it, threw it in the nearest <laughs> dustbin. So when the call came uh, for the academy, it came uh, as an Air Force officer. So that's how I joined the Air Force. Brilliant story. That's really interesting. So can you tell us some of the initial aircraft you started your basic training on and what they were like to fly? Uh, we start with the propeller aircraft and uh, it was... Uh, a copy of the chipmunk, the British chipmunk. Okay. Uh, it was made by our uh, Hindustan Aeronautics Limited, HAL, and it was called the HT2, the Hindustan Trainer 2. But it was, I mean, looking at it, it looks exactly like a chipmunk, more or less. Mm-hmm. So that's the initial training, six months. And then you move on to, we have a three-stage training system, six months each. And uh, this is after my academy, three years of of the academy, right? Mm -hmm. Joint training. After that, for the Air Force guys, it's a one and a half year further training. And uh, from there, I moved on to the Harvard or the T6 Texan. Mm -hmm. So we had the Harvard uh, 4B uh, four Bs, I think, and the T-6 Texan, not the present Texan, which or the later Texan that the Americans got. This is the old, old one, Second World War variety, mm. with the huge engine cowling in front and stuff like that, tailwheel. Uh, brilliant aeroplane, a fighter pilot's aeroplane, really. Mm. And uh, then from there to my last stage uh, of flying, uh, of flying training, which was on jets. Uh, after the second stage, we get, you know, split into guys going into transport stream and the fighter stream. So it's uh, 
One is by merit, capability. You know, there are various factors that one looks into. Uh, the student, whether he's fit to go fighters or would he do better in transports and helicopters. So in our days, it was only a bifurcation. Uh, mm. And nowadays, there's a trifurcation. The helicopter stream is now as important as anything else. So I went into the fighter stream. And um, so we flew vampires. Nice. The vampire, the vampire, um, uh, uh, vampire, uh, what was it, 56 was the two seater, and the vampire 52 was the fighter. Uh, we had vampires in the Indian Air Force. Uh, they were used in daylight uh, strikes initially, and then it became the official night fighter aircraft of the Indian Air Force. Mm. Yes. So we trained on the vampire and uh, for another six months. And I graduated uh, in uh, January of 1972. I missed the 1971 war. Actually, we were, we were to be commissioned on the 3rd of December 1971 mm. as per the plan. And that's the day the war started. Yeah. So, and we knew it. So they had pushed our commissioning date further ahead postponed it into January. Mm -hmm. So we missed the war. Yes, and so how long, you mentioned there like um, how many months it took, but how long did it take from, yeah, initial flying training to be selected to your first frontline aircraft that you were going to go and train on? So once you finish your vampire, those days vampire stage, uh, that's your training and you get commissioned as a pilot officer. Uh, you first move into an, an operational training unit, uh, OTU. Uh, I think the Brits also have, the RAF also has, you know, we follow the British system more or less yes. to a large degree. And uh, so we had an OTU with hunters. So we flew the hunters. And that was your first initiation into uh, a modern, I would say, uh, fighter aircraft which had just come out of the war we had a lot of war heroes in otu at that time they had done a marvelous job and uh, so we we trained under these guys who were fresh out of the war they came out of the war in december 71 and january 72 we were there so we were trained uh, under a guys um, uh, under some of the guys who who had you know the adrenaline still going you know yeah and, uh, and they, they were full of beans and with uh, and then they put us through the mill to make sure that you know we are groomed correct and that's how we uh, started so so that was another six months it's not much it's about 35 uh, 40 hours mm -hmm. on the hunter and then you move into the fighter aircraft which are the frontline fighter aircraft of the Indian Air Force those days, we had the, the MiG-21 and the Su-7 quite new. Uh, we had the Hunters and the Nats. So one is, uh, uh, you know, uh, a lot of us, uh, most of us, in fact, were sent for a, a what they called a high-performance medical to check your, you know, medical uh, fitness for high altitude, supersonic flying and stuff like that. They put us through a specific medical and uh, we went through that. 
and then we were taken out on based on what the merit and the you know, capability wise into MiGs, uh, MiG-21s, Su-7s, and uh, Hunters and Nats. Mm -hmm. So we went into four different areas uh, yeah. from the group. So I went into the MiG-21. We're going to get yes. into one of my favorite planes, um, the MiG-23 and obviously the 27. Um, so can you tell us the role of the MiG-23 with the Indian Air Force when it came into service? And what were your first thoughts on the aircraft? Well, uh, when the MiG-23 came into the Indian Air Force, uh, uh, I, uh, I never got to fly it at that time. I was flying the MiG-21 at that time, when the MiG-23 was uh, inducted. And uh, very shortly after the MiG-23 was inducted, and we inducted initially the uh, two types. One was the BN, the MiG-23BN, which was a ground attack, purely ground attack. And one was the MiG-23MF, which was uh, a purely air defense aircraft. So the design and the shape of the two were different, mm -hmm. where the MiG-23BN, uh, the ground attack, had the duckbill nose uh, for better forward visibility when flying at low level. And uh, the uh, MiG-23MF had uh, the traditional uh, nose with the, with the radar inside the nose cone and stuff like that, mm -hmm. the airborne interception radar. And very shortly after these two were inducted, we inducted the MiG-25. So I transitioned, actually. Uh, it's You don't say, uh, I mean, transition, I would say this, I was selected. You know, you get selected into these little pools and into the stream. And I was selected to fly the MiG-25 rather than the MiG-23 and the 27. So I've actually flown the 25 uh well before i flew the mig-23 and the 27. Mm -hmm. and yeah well, we're going to get onto the mig-25 part later because but uh, as i say like i want to focus on the 23 uh, and right. 27. but uh, yeah can you tell us a bit about uh, your ground training on the 23 and obviously you had wing sweep was that a big problem going through the ground training or was it was it easy for you to get hold of uh, the MiG-23, uh, up front, let me tell you that uh, I have flown the MiG-23U, or the UB, as they call it. It's the two-seater trainer only. I didn't fly the fighter. Uh, and I flew the MiG-27. So I've flown the MiG-23U and the MiG-27. And uh, yes, the wing sweep was a big problem, in the sense, for a guy who's not used to it. Uh, but we uh, we went through a ground training program. That, uh, for most aircraft, they put you through a ground training first, and which lasts for about three weeks or so, uh, where all the systems you familiarize yourself with all the systems and uh, what's on board and uh, the capabilities, and you study the whole thing. You go around the airplane. The aircraft is all opened up by the technicians for you to see and physically uh, check as to what is what. 
from from the engine to the radars to the instruments to everything else. Uh, what uh, you would, uh, I'm sure you are aware, the the Russian standardization of the cockpit was very good, mm-hmm. and uh, a guy transiting from uh, transitioning from the MiG-21 to the 23 to the 20 variants of the MiG-23 to the 25, right up to the 29, uh, 27, 29, uh, would feel very familiar uh, looking at the cockpit. Right. Those days we were still on the uh, analog, uh, you know, cockpit. There was no glass cockpit. Uh, and let me tell you a very, very uh, uh, funny sort of incident. Uh, one of our chiefs came to see the MiG-25 when I was there. And uh, the chief at that time, and we were showing him the airplane, and he hadn't seen it till then. And uh, so he climbed up, and he's uh, an old hand on the MiG-21 himself. So he climbs the ladder, and he peers into the cockpit, and he looks at it, and he says, hey, this looks very familiar. Because, you know, the MiG-25 cockpit looked exactly like the MiG-21 that he was familiar with. Right. And then he steps into the cockpit and sits down and he says, damn it, it even smells the same. <laughs> so, so you see, that's that's the standardization of the, the Russians. Uh, when you transitioned from one to the other, you felt comfortable in the cockpit as far as the instrumentation was concerned and the layout of the instruments. Uh, so that part was fine. The trouble of flying the MiG-23 or the 27 was the uh, the wing sweep one, and the fact that the tail was very low and very close to ground. It was just mm. about eight inches off the ground. Mm. So the problem was when you came in for a landing. Uh, and you had a ventral fin for stability, longitude and stability. The ventral fin folds up. And once you take off and you raise the wheels as the uh, undercarriage uh, retracts, the fin comes down. Mm. So now you have the wheels up and the fin is down, the tail, tail fin is down. So you have the vertical fin on top and you have the, t- the tail fin below. And when you come in for a landing and you lower the wheels for the landing, uh, as the wheels come down, the, the ventral fin folds up. Hmm. And that is why I think this is uh, the only aircraft in the world where you don't call three greens when you come in for a landing. You call four greens. <laughs> That's brilliant. <Right? laughs> yeah. So that was necessary. But with the with the ventral fin up and folded, you still had only eight inches of clearance. Oof. Yeah, that 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 was that was crazy. Wow. And eight inches is, is just this much. Yeah. So eight, maybe nine, uh, whatever. The fact is that when you landed, you couldn't flare out like you do in 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 most aircraft. You come in and flare out, and you know get the nose up, and you do some aerodynamic braking once you touch down before you use the brakes, uh, you couldn't do that. You had to come in at a particular attitude 
which was very, very specific, which was uh, unforgiving, I would say. Mm. Because if you were lower, you would hit the nose wheel. And if you were a little too much, you would hit the tail. Wow. So, so your perspectives had to be very, very correct, very good. Uh, so when you trained and you on the on the on the two seater, and the instructor, the pilot at the back, uh, gave you the instruction, uh, you had to be very clear as to who you clear to fly solo, mm. and keep on the MiG twenty three, because if you if you found that the pilot was weak in as far as these perspectives are concerned, uh, he he's not fit to be on that aeroplane. Mm. Uh, we had a lot of cases of, uh, not a lot, but a few of, of PIO, pilot-induced oscillations, where, you know, guys hit the ground, bounced off, hit the nose wheel, came back because of attitude. Mm. You know, three, four times. Yeah. <clears throat> the undercarriage uh, also, which, which you would have seen, uh, is a very, very peculiar sort of an undercarriage of the belly. Mm-hmm. rather than on the wings and uh, it's very close to the fuselage uh, it's it's a fantastic design there was a student in a university who designed this thing I we, this is what we've heard from the Russians mm-hmm. and uh, he was given uh, a national prize by the president of Russia for this particular design it was it was one of its kind and a very unique design that he he made it was a student who did it in the university. Yes, incredible. And yes, could you? Um, I mean, coming from the MiG twenty one, was there a power difference on that first? You know, like take uh, take off with reheat, or could you feel it more in the MiG twenty one? Because it seems like the engine on the um, twenty three and twenty seven is quite a big engine. Could you feel that power? Yes. Um, on the MiG-21, uh, when you kick in the afterburner, you get this kick on the back and, uh, you know, push and the surge as the as the aircraft starts to accelerate. Uh, the MiG-23 and the 27, the, the kick is ab- about the same. The surge is definitely more. Can feel the surge, right? But uh, at the same time, I would say that the comparatively the the weight difference of the aircraft is also there. Of course, yeah. So while the surge is there, the acceleration is more or less the same, mm-hmm. and uh, because of its sixteen degree wing sweep on takeoff, uh, the takeoff is is very short, very very short on the MiG-23 and the 27. And and she doesn't take off in the traditional, you know, nose up uh, way that all aircraft take off. She sort of flies off the ground, literally yes, straight. Yes, yeah. sits there. <laughs> it's a peculiar feeling initially. And once you get up and you put the wheels up, then you can rotate the nose up and move. Yeah, yeah, ab- yeah absolutely. And I want to talk about, about the wing sweep on the 23 and 27. Um, I've heard, I don't know if it's true, that uh, both aircraft couldn't sweep above, is it 3G in a, a 3G turn? You had to be relatively, you know, 
and 1G or 2G. Is that is, is there any truth to that? Yes. So if you were wanting to sweep the wing from 16 to 45 and then to 72, uh, you would need to offload the G to do the sweep and then get back to the G that you desired, hmm. which was a severe limitation. Uh, but uh, you would understand the aircraft was not designed for air combat or close-in combat. So the requirement of changing these was, uh, was very limited, I would say. Mm -hmm. We utilized the aircraft, uh, the MiG-27, in, in all three uh, features of the 16, the 45, and the 72 in, in the Top Gun school. Yeah. Uh, that's JAGD, uh, Tactics mm -hmm. and Air Combat Development Establishment. Because that's where, uh, you know, the guys with the maximum experience come there to do the course and fly there. And uh, one is they have the capability and uh, they know the safety margins. And uh, they are able to know when the transition is required because mm -hmm. uh, there we go through some very uh, rigorous exercises which uh, sometimes demands the, the necessity, I would say, to sweep or change sweep in between the missions. Mm -hmm. Yes. And yeah, obviously, like sticking on with the 23 here, uh, obviously you and the U, uh, which was the trainer, did you ever uh, conduct a DACT or BFM? And, and how did the 23 fare against, you know, the types you went up to and trained against? Uh, in DACT, uh, uh, let, uh, Mike, let me uh, just, uh, I, I'll, I'll um, request you that I, I talk on the MiG-27 because okay. the MiG-23... The MiG-23 in DACT uh, and the MiG-27 performed more or less the same. Okay. MiG-27 was heavier. Mm -hmm. So in our Top Gun school, uh, in TAG-D, we had two flights. One flight was the MiG-21 flight and one flight was a MiG-27 flight. Right. So you always, you always flew mixed. You always flew mixed. So we had guys coming from the MiG-27s who would fly, or 23s and 27s who would fly the MiG-27. Mm -hmm. And the MiG-21 guys would fly the MiG-21s. Right. And the first exercise or the first sortie that you flew in TAGD when you came to do the course uh, was a one versus one of a dissimilar type. Nice. So you flew a MiG-27 against MiG-21 just to get the feel. Now, they've done it in the squadrons because we exercise even in the squadrons between airplanes, and uh, there's a lot of experience that is gained in the squadron itself. Mm -hmm. And TAGD just takes you to a level where you are reaching the far corners of the envelope uh, of each airplane. You know, you, you're, 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 you're put to the extremes of... Uh, handling of the aeroplane and and sort of uh, getting the maximum out of it uh, in, in your in your training syllabus yes 
Yeah, absolutely. And let's talk a bit about the cockpit because was it a comfortable environment? Uh, let's go for the 27 here. Did that feel, was it comfortable? Because I've seen a 27 and it looks quite, uh, quite cramped. <laughs> Uh, after the May 21, it was a pleasure to get into a May 27. <laughs> yes. Right. Uh, <laughs> I, I, think, I think you would be aware of the fact uh, that the Russians were not too good on their ergonomics. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, so you had, uh, you know, you, you, you would bump into all sorts of stuff in the cockpit. Um, they were not comfortable cockpits. The seats were not very comfortable. Uh, but the fact is, uh, the MiG-27 was certainly much wider than the MiG-21. And uh, so for us, uh, who, were, who had a very um, extensive background on the MiG-21, the MiG-27 was a very comfortable cockpit, space-wise. Mm -hmm. Switches and stuff like that, accessible, yes, uh, much better than the MiG-21. Uh, but yes, they do have some of them in awkward places. I wouldn't say it was too bad. Mm -hmm. It was it it wasn't uh, uh, as bad as one would uh, think it was. Once you start flying it, mm -hmm. and uh, if you come from a Western aeroplane, uh, say a Jaguar or a Mirage, and you come into a Mi Twenty Seven, yes. It would look cramped, it would feel cramped and uh, all that. But uh, if you're a regular MiG guy, uh, I think it was fine. Yeah, so what kind of weapons and armament could the 27 carry in your time? Uh, the MiG-27 was, uh, was uh, uh, it carried, I think, about... Uh, Eight tons, eight tons of um, six or eight tons of um, armament, and you would carry a mix of weapons. Um, one was the rocket pods. You know, you have the Uba rocket pods. Yeah. Um, and uh, the Uba sixteen and the Uba thirty-two. You know, and you if you carried four rocket pods and thirty-two rockets each. It's it's uh, it's the volume of fire which is which is immense, mm -hmm. and um, uh, I don't think there's any you can expect any survivability uh, in the swath of where the rockets go. Mm -hmm. uh, that was uh, the rockets. The uh, the gun, of course, is a very very famous gun, the Gatling. Yes, uh, the Gasha six thirty thirty millimeter. It was a monster. It was a monster gun, and uh, it would shake up the airplane uh, <laughs> very badly. The uh, the kick that you got out of it, or the recoil, was, uh, I mean, forget about heart stopping, it was, uh, it almost stopped the airplane. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you had a, uh, I, I, Personally, I've used it only for, only for very short bursts, and you use it for about half a second burst or so. Wow. And um, but it, it was a frightening experience I, the first time you fired it. Honestly, yeah, I can imagine that was huge. Uh, we had we had some of the uh, air to surface weapons which were which were very very effective and good. And 
there were some of these, um, uh, we had anti-radiation missiles too on the MiG-27. So it was a fairly potent weapon systems that we had on board the aircraft. Absolutely. And just on a yeah. side note, before we wrap up uh, the 23 and 27 part, I heard that uh, both aircraft are very quick down low. Oh, yes. Uh, both the air aircraft uh, at low level for what it was designed for were brilliant. They were rock steady, rock steady at how much? 60 meters, 200 feet, 30 meters, 100 feet, uh, 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 that's uh, 100 feet. And uh, they were rock steady. And uh, we used to do these uh, lay down passes, as you call it, you know, with uh, some of these weapons, which are retarders and stuff like that, retarder bombs. And uh, you fly in at 50 meters, that's 150 feet. And uh, she was rock steady, rock wow. steady. You engage the afterburner at low level and she will go like a, like a rocket. I mean, the the power infusion and uh, the speed uh, or the acceleration was absolutely phenomenal in both these aeroplanes. Uh, at, uh, I've flown it up to 1100, 1200, just short of Mark 1, and uh, she's rock steady, but she starts to sort of hmm. oscillate a bit around 1100 onwards, beyond 11, 1150 or so. The little bit of oscillation, you've got to be a little, you know, she's a little heavy too. So, so you need to hold it a little tight. Mm -hmm. I'm not a very big built guy. I'm small. I'm five feet, six inches tall. And uh, so I needed all my strength to hold on to it <laughs> before she runs away. And most Russian airplanes will run away from you if you don't control it within the speed limits. Yeah, absolutely. They'll, speed, they'll give you a top speed that, you know, the aircraft is capable of this. But if you let her go, she will go beyond that. She'll exceed. Yeah, I've heard that many a time, uh, Sumit. But, yes. uh, but if you can maybe share one or two memorable stories from your time, either flying the 23 or 27 with our viewers, that would be great. Well, my, my biggest problem was um, I transitioned to a swing wing aeroplane at a very late stage of my life when I think all my uh, peer group had finished their flying careers. And I was a group captain and uh, a colonel. And uh, I was sent as the commandant of Top Gun School and that's when I transitioned into the MiG-23 and the 27. So at that last stage of life of flying, of effective flying, I would say, when everybody else has finished their effective flying, you're still continuing. Uh, you've gone past your uh, peak, I would say, of, you know, uh, of uh, orientation as far as uh, a squadron line pilot is concerned. And with so much of experience on the MiG-21, the 23, then uh, being an instructor on, on trainer aircraft, now you suddenly come to some something like this. So there were there were two occasions, I think, 
when I was about to start rolling with my wings still at 72, <laughs> rolling for takeoff. <laughs> oh, and, no. And I, I, I would get a call from someone, either the ATC or from somebody in the formation to say that 16, you know, just a sharp call, 16. <laughs> and I, and then I knew what was wrong. And so you <laughs> pull the lever on 16 and so she would sweep forward. I've actually done it on on a roll. I've started my takeoff roll and been told that 16 and I've swept it forward and then continued with the takeoff, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, nothing more memorable, I would say, on the MiG-27 other than firing the gun, uh, uh, which was a memorable experience. And to do these lay down attacks, uh, level attacks, uh, very low and uh, at high speed, uh, coming in at uh, 900 kilometers per hour and uh, exiting at 1100, uh, 1150 yeah. kilometers per hour. Uh, it was a fantastic experience. You're close to treetop level. And um, so we, we were in terrain which was suitable for this sort of thing operating there. And uh, it was it was a wonderful experience, yes. Absolutely, I can imagine. But how many hours did you get on the 23 and 27 combined? Not much. In, 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 two, uh, in two years, uh, since I was also flying the MiG-21 mm -hmm. as the commandant, and as the commandant, I don't need to fly all the time with these guys. Mm -hmm. You see, you're the boss. So you choose and select what you want to fly and what levels you want to fly and uh, so I would and then I would do um, some of these uh, check sorties with these with the students who were doing the course so I didn't really get to fly the 23 and the 27 too much and I would say that I had about in two years about uh, 100 and 120 and 30 hours. I don't have my log books here. I'm sitting in the United States. So I could have told you specific. That's still impressive. But uh, not too much. 